Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, August 31st. It's almost two months until Election Day, and Republicans are suddenly anxious about their chances of winning back the Senate. Is Mitch McConnell giving up on the race in Arizona as Republicans begin to make hard choices about where to spend their money? Or is Mitch just winking at billionaire Peter Thiel to get him to spend more cash to pull his boy Blake Masters over the finish line? Teddy Schleifer is here to help me read the smoke signals. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy hump day, everybody. I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer. And if Teddy is with me here, we are talking about money and politics. And there's a big, interesting behind the scenes story going on right now in Republican politics uh, involving Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, and Peter Thiel, the libertarian Trump supporting venture capital rich guy who has been dabbling in politics in recent years. He is associated with Blake Masters, the Republican Senate nominee in Arizona, and also J.D. Vance, the Republican Senate nominee in Ohio. Both of those Senate races are way closer than they should be in what's supposed to be a Republican year. Uh, Blake Masters is losing by six in the Real Clear Politics average to Senator Mark Kelly in Arizona. Depending on the poll you look at in Ohio, J.D. Vance is narrowly ahead or tied with Tim Ryan, the Democrat. And McConnell's big outside group, Senate Leadership Fund, uh, mm-hmm. announced a couple days ago that they are pulling money out of Arizona uh, because Masters might be left for dead. He's too weird for Arizona. His campaign sucks. Whatever the narrative is, they're pulling out. But, Teddy, there's some other stuff going on behind the scenes here, some winks and nods that are being made through the press and privately. What's really going on in Arizona and possibly Ohio, too, here? So you're right, Peter. There's what's happening uh, behind the curtain and happening in front of the curtain. In front of the curtain, it looks like the McConnell-led super PACs are pulling out of Arizona. They had, I think, about an $8 million reservation for the fall. And at the same time, the allied outside group, the allied nonprofit group called One Nation, is funneling $28 million into Ohio, which is where J.D. Vance is running. The idea that these two things are connected is not implied it's explicit it was actually a pretty remarkable quote that Stephen law who is mcconnell's kind of longtime top political advisor Stephen law said in an interview with politico last week that the decision in arizona was due to quote an unexpected expense in ohio so there's no there's no there's no like sugarcoating this like these two things are connected and there's this irony here that ohio is a race that should have been pretty firmly in the gop column um, you know, I think Tim Ryan is running a better than expected campaign. Uh, J.D. Vance, according to some people, is running a worse than expected campaign. And that's why it's an unexpected expense. Like SLF and the McConnell-led GOP establishment didn't really think they had to spend any money in Ohio. Um, you know, this is a state Trump won by, I forget, eight, ten points. It was not close. Yep. And, you know, money, you know, is, is fungible, right? So if you need to spend more and more money in Ohio, you can just pull from other places. And there's not as if there's infinite money in Republican politics. So suddenly, Arizona, the other candidate that Peter Thiel helped elect, Blake Masters, is sort of being coincidentally or ironically harmed by the other Thiel candidate, J.D. Vance, where Mm -hmm. now suddenly there's not enough money for Blake in Arizona. That's what's happening in front of the curtain. Behind the curtain is Peter Thiel. 
Teal, for those who don't remember, spent $15 million to boost J.D. Vance into the Ohio Republican nomination in the spring successfully. And in the summer, he spent $15 million to boost Blake Masters into the Republican nomination in Arizona. It's a pretty remarkable success story from where Peter stands. I mean, it's not every day that a donor elects two GOP nominees. Mm -hmm. Both of them were underdogs. Both of them were, you know, first-time candidates. Both of them, like, didn't really raise other money seriously. I mean, they raised some hard dollars. The $15 million that he put into each of their super PACs, it's not a coincidence that the money was identical. It was dispersed in identical amounts. It was 10, then three and a half, then one and a half. Now, the question is, is Peter Thiel going to spend more money for Blake and JD in the general? It is now Labor Day, or just before Labor Day. Neither the Blake Super PAC nor the JD Super PAC is on television. There are no reservations from either of these groups. By all public appearances, it seems like they're both broke. And Senate Leadership Fund, the McConnell Group, is pulling out. And what I can tell you is that over the last couple of months, there's been a lot of haggling back and forth between the Peter team and the McConnell team about who's going to foot the bill for these two candidates. Because if Peter's going to write the check for Blake Masters, maybe that means Mitch McConnell can spend money for Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania or for a whole host of other candidates. So there's it comes down to who is going to be responsible for getting the Peter Thiel candidates over the line. Is it Mitch McConnell or is it Peter Thiel? So it seems kind of obvious to me what, what you just said. It's August 30th. Blake Masters is down by six points. In Arizona, Mitch McConnell's not pulling out of Arizona. Yeah. If you follow this stuff closely, like you do, like campaign finance laws forbid a super PAC or a 501c4 from talking to a campaign or, you know, two super PACs or outside entities talking to each other and illegally coordinating. And that's why you see, I mean, I I don't know if they still do this, but a few years ago, McConnell did this in his reelection race. The campaign will film B-roll. Oh, totally. Silent B-roll upload a shitload of it to YouTube. So it's just there in case anyone out there with millions of bucks wants to just take some McConnell B-roll and make it into an ad, you know, like, so in other words, like this seems pretty clear to me that it would be a signal to Pierre Thiel, who you mentioned, like came into Ohio, for example, kind of late in the primary and pushed J.D. Vance over the edge along with the Trump endorsement. And so there is still two months till election day. A lot can change. Democrats are feeling pretty good right now about the Senate. But, you know, these races are still way too close for Mitch McConnell, who's a brilliant political operator, especially on the campaign side, to give up completely. Um, But one of my questions for you is, like, why is J.D. Vance, who went to Yale, wrote a best-selling book, worked for Steve Case, was in venture capital. And Ron Klain. Yale. Yeah, no, he knows rich people. Like, why is he such a shitty fundraiser? And like Masters yeah. too. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think Vance's numbers have been worse than Masters in terms yeah. of fundraising. I don't know is, is the answer. Like, I mean, there have been some people who have kind of posited that Vance is somewhat somewhat lazy. There are, there are people who think that he's not working as hard as he could have. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's just what other many people are saying. It. Um, <laughs> right. But 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 th- there is this idea that, you know, they have not neither of them have raised that much money in terms of hard dollars. To your earlier point, Peter, I think you're totally right. I have trouble believing that either McConnell or Peter are going to let the Blake campaign flounder. Like, put, put yourself in Peter Thiel's shoes, for instance, right? Yeah. Uh, you spent $15 million, which is not a lot of money for him, but is a lot of money in, in the 
you know, I think it was uh, the, some record setting amount. Um, someone could fact check me on the on the exact record it set, but it was a ton of money to spend for a single Senate candidate in a primary. He spent $15 million for him for a year. And Peter also spent a lot of time on this. Like he's someone who talks to Blake often. Um, you know, he really cares about him. Blake was basically Peter's chief of staff for the last couple of years. Um, if he spent $15 million to get this guy elected in the primary, it's hard to believe that if someone is down six points, right, that you're not going to spend something. Like the point, the point is to elect them. The point is not to get them to be the nominee, right? Right. And you, you wonder, you maybe you could think if Blake was down 20 points or 15 points and you're saying like, hey, is it worth spending another $15 million to get him from losing by 15 to losing by 10? Like, mm-hmm. sure, I could see it. Though you could also understand like a sunk cost fallacy here of like, fuck it, I'll spend it anyway. Like, I, I, I find it hard to believe that he's not going to spend the money at some point. But I've been saying that for months, and, and now it's September, and you're sort of getting to the point where it's like people are crafting like their final plan, and yes. um, the decision point is coming up. I think, honestly, it's like someone showing up to buy a car, and we all know there's some price in between the asking price and what the first offer is, and that's sort of where we're at with McConnell and Teal, where there's going to be some deal that's struck eventually, where someone will lose the game of chicken and decide to pay for it. But the, the, this, I think, just sort of shows in a, in a broader sense here, Peter, the divide between what Peter Thiel cares about and what Mitch McConnell cares about. Mitch McConnell cares about winning the Republican majority. Peter Thiel doesn't really care that much about that. Peter Thiel cares about these two individual candidates. Yeah, he's not going to like pony up money for like Herschel Walker. Exactly, exactly. Right. Jordan. So so in a, lot, in, a, in a way, this sort of Mexican standoff is is a snapshot of kind of the differences between what donors care about or what this individual donor cares about, which is what I've been arguing on this podcast and stories for the last year, is that Peter Thiel doesn't actually care about the Republican Senate majority. He cares about J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, and he does not really believe in like the party for the party's own sake. He believes in his two guys, and that's what he's going to care about. And you know, that's also, though, why I do think ultimately this will be a happy ending for Republicans. Ultimately, I think there will be a Peter Thiel check in the final two months. Yeah, it's too... I mean, remember, the Senate's 50-50. Kamala's a tiebreaker. Like, they they want to put enough skin in the game to yep. pull people over the finish line anywhere they can. Um, you mentioned like final decisions coming up. If you're looking at house races and you're like the D Triple C or the NRCC or you're an outside group, you start to make your cuts probably like mid September. Like that's when you mm. like you know you're like okay we're not going to keep investing in this district. It's gone. Senate, they're not going to pull out in September, like these outside right. groups. I mean, they, like as long as these races are within the margin of error. And look, even with the polls, like Masters is a good example. Like Trafalgar put out a poll. Trafalgar is a Republican pollster. They have like a yep. plus one Republican lean, but like 538 rates them pretty good. A minus pollster rating Trafalgar. They have Kelly at plus four. Uh, mm. Mark Kelly in Arizona. Fox News has yeah. Kelly at plus eight. In a Republican year... With like Repu- with like MAGA voters out there who are kind of like the shy Trump voter, or whatever. Like, you got to build in two, three, four points in, in the Republican favor, and so that's sort of what I say. Blake Masters is running in Arizona, very polarized state, and you know, very conservative electorate on the Republican side. He can still win the race; <laughs> like, it's not yes. over. And also, you know, as has been pointed out, these are all reservations, right? And there's no actual money that's being spent. Reservations are moved and canceled and you know, rescheduled all the time. And there's an element of this that like people, Alberta's play games with the reservations too. Like they'll, they'll reserve something to, or hide a reservation until the end to 
not let Democrats match it. Like people, there's no actual money at the door here. Um, I, I, I agree with you, Peter. There's there's an element of everyone's playing the game here and things can always change. And, you know, if they want to put in five million bucks the last week for Blake Masters, that'll be expensive because it's the last minute ad buy. But everything is changeable. All right. Final question, Teddy, on a scale of one to 1989, how hyped are you for the new Taylor Swift album? Uh, I'm very hyped. What is it? It's, it's <laughs> October. It's around Election Day, right? October. It's like October, October 20th. 28th or something. Yeah. At midnight, as, yeah. as we know from the album. I, I saw that last night on Twitter. I was very excited. All right, man. Thank you so much for the reporting. This is like really good stuff. Right in my wheelhouse. You're making this podcast easy for me. You bet. Coming up next, Ben Landy and Julia Alexander talk about a big milestone for Netflix. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the commercial break. I'm Ben Landy here with Julia Alexander, who is the director of strategy at Parrot Analytics and the author of the What I'm Hearing Plus newsletter at Puck. How's it going, Julia? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. So I wanted to talk to you today about the OG streaming service, Netflix, which has taken its lumps over the last couple of months. Um, The stock is down in a huge way from November. But the one headline that I haven't seen discussed yet until I read some of your new reporting this week is that Netflix just passed a pretty remarkable milestone, which is that 50% of all the content on its U.S. platform are now Netflix originals, which is pretty wild when you consider that this was the place that started off as the streaming platform for Law & Order SVU episodes or SpongeBob reruns. So what is the backstory there? Yeah, I also love that Netflix is now the OG streamer and poor CBS All Access, just (laughs) totally forgotten about. Um, Memory hold. So this... (laughs) Yeah. So this data point actually came to me from a guy named Casey Moore, who's in England. He's a Netflix analyst, and he's kind of the, I describe him um, in my piece as the industry's best kept secret. He is an obsessive, data-driven analyst um, who is obsessed with Netflix and only Netflix. And he reached out to me and he said, hey, did you know Netflix crossed 50% originals in the US? And this was something that CFO or then CFO David Wells uh, mentioned that was part of Netflix's goal in 2016. He is at a conference and he was looking at the looming landscape. You know, Disney was pulling all of its content off in the launch of Disney Plus happening years later. All these other companies were kind of toying with the idea of getting into the streaming space, but it was really Disney that kicked it off. And Netflix at that time, to your exact point, was reliant on its content from its now competitors, but then partners. The idea of having a Breaking Bad or whatever it might be on the platform is kind of what drove initial signups and and kept people streaming. And then, you know, back in 2013, they were kind of like, we want to get into the original space. And so they had House of Cards and Orange is New Black, BoJack Horseman, a bunch of these titles that really defined Netflix's foray into original content back in the day. And the reason they wanted to get into 50% content was because they saw these companies pulling their product. They knew that eventually if they didn't replace it, they get to a point where there's maybe a thousand titles on the platform. A lot of that is not enough to drive scalable growth. And a lot of that is not enough to drive retention. And in the United States, where we are seeing massive subscriber, um, not just slowdown in in the US we're, from Netflix, we are seeing 
um, loss in the United States as the company really struggles to retain its customers. This 50% content moment comes at a time when customers are also debating the quality of Netflix programming. They're debating the identity of Netflix. They're debating why they should sign up for the streaming service or why they should keep it. So this magical number that they wanted to get to, the idea that they were going to be able to replenish all of the content that they were losing, also ties into this more overarching existential question of, is the content that Netflix is bringing to the platform as originals really what people want? And is it enough to keep those customers engaged? Yeah, you wrote this week that it's kind of a catch-22 situation for Netflix, because on the one hand, they have to have more of that original content. They can't just like go out and poach the greatest hits anymore from the television networks. But also, customer satisfaction has been dropping every year alongside the increase in originals. And you could theorize that you know, there's other things happening here because there are a ton of other new streaming services out there. It's a more competitive landscape. Consumers are more choosy than they used to be. But still, that seems to me like totally damning. And I wonder how you think Netflix can escape that cycle beyond the obvious answer of just producing better stuff for less money. Well, I think it's a really difficult question. And the analogy I always like to bring up is when HBO launched in like the late 70s, the first thing HBO ever aired was a hockey game. It was an NHL game. And at the time, HBO was this place for, you know, reruns of shows and, you know, certain national sports games. And the idea of what HBO was when it launched, the idea of what HBO was into the 80s and early 90s, compared to the HBO we identified as, which really came to light between 1997 and 2002, 2003 with Sex and the City, Oz, The Sopranos, and The Wire didn't happen until years, years later. Same thing happened with FX. FX was a place for Fox to kind of dump additional programming and bring in advertising dollars. And then John Landgraf comes around and there's The Shield and there's all these other shows in 2005 onwards that really define FX as what it is today. Netflix, you know, it's only been in the original game for nine years. And in that nine years, Netflix has created over 3,000 originals, at least it's on its US platform. It's a unprecedented, almost unsustainable number, to, if you think about it. And they've expanded into different areas of programming. Right? When they launched, they had comedies and dramas. Now they have huge sci-fi fantasy series like Stranger Things. They have massive unscripted shows. They have family programming. You know, they've an animation schedule that is on par, if not uh, more voluminous at this point in terms of producing than Disney, than Pixar. And so I think what we're seeing happen is kind of what we almost saw, if I can compare it to what DC tried to do when Marvel Studios was at its high point. It was this idea of how can we rush this thing that would take you know 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, how can we do that in five, six years? How can we really not just have the quality, ideally, but the quantity? And so I think that's where you see where Netflix goes from, you know, the company that wanted to be HBO before HBO became Netflix, and now they've kind of become CBS. And that's not a criticism. CBS is a legacy company. It's one of the largest volumes of content. It has a huge library. And Netflix is trying to become that all-appealing streaming service to customers by building its library as fast as it can. It's interesting to me when you compare Netflix to CBS, because something that CBS, like the other networks, do really well is that they do produce these mass market, super popular shows that just have hundreds and hundreds of episodes over decades. You know, one of the most popular shows on CBS, of course, is like NCIS. But Netflix has not actually been very good at producing that kind of show. I mean, that's one reason they've gone out and licensed them. So, you know, obviously The Office was a huge hit. But it seems like they are not actually going out and making that kind of cheap content. 
they haven't quite figured out how to they haven't yet figured out how to crack the code of making those network style syndication shows. Well, the answer to your question is in that exact part the last the last part of it, right? Which is the syndication aspect. If we think about the economics of television that allowed networks to produce shows that ran five, six, seven, eight years, but as long as there were the advertisers were there and the demo was there, they could continue making that show. There was this financial thing coming in. And then once they got to season five, season six, once they got to hundred episodes, they could syndicate it, right? And then all of a sudden it was a self-propelling revenue maker. It was kind of like, this show is going to make us money no matter what. There's still an audience. You're Chuck Lorre. You're going to make 10 seasons of a show. It's kind of a guaranteed thing. They end it when they want to end it. If we look at the economics of Netflix until recently, that was never the case. Netflix has an efficiency metric. Netflix has these little things that make up its, its DNA of whether or not something really works. And a lot of that is like, did it bring in customers? Did it prevent high-risk customers from canceling? All these different things. If it didn't do that, it was not economically feasible to keep a show going beyond one, two, three seasons, which is why we have this constant you know, meme almost of like Netflix one and done. The idea that Netflix moves on from a show really quickly. And Netflix has said, you know, according there was a report from Insider, that Netflix executives have told producers and agents that they're looking for a new girl show. They're looking for an NCIS. They're looking for a Criminal Minds. Like they know that the audience wants that. Now with advertising, with the ad side coming in, they might be able to say, okay, we can sustain this show for three, four, five seasons and, and, then, and then beyond that. Now Netflix can say, economically, we can take a bet on creating a longer show to get to whatever our supernatural is, like whatever that is going to be. You know, will it work for Netflix? It's it's rough. Like there's a reason that this consistently works for CBS and and NBC. And they also have a different audience than Netflix has. And it's, it's a big question mark and there's a lot of variables. But I do think until now, they haven't been able to operate in the same economic environment that allowed its broadcast competitors to really continue taking bets on those types of shows. Yeah, and of course, it's not easy to make the next The Office or New Girl or Law and Order. If anyone could do it, everybody would. But it is interesting to hear you say that Netflix has had this thought. They are looking at doing more procedurals and more sitcoms to fill the place of those shows that are being pulled out. But this has been great. Julia, thanks so much. You've got a column on this topic up at puck.news, which I encourage everyone to go check out. Appreciate you stopping by. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 